Where else can you go to not only find the information on how to train your dog, but the best deals on training equipment as well? Standing Stone Supply has everything you need to create that next versatile champion from DT system electronics down to even emergency med kits to take with you on your hunting trips. If you need some help with your training program, then their step-by-step -step online course might be a great fit for you, making it a convenient one-stop shop for the knowledge as well as the gear to take your training to the next level. Hit up standingstonesupply.com and promo code GDIY will save you 10%. As someone who constantly travels to new locations out of state to hunt, I have to rely on map scouting before I even get in the truck. Onyx Hunt Maps makes it super easy for me to plan out my trips as well as track my success while on the trip. The offline maps along with the tracking feature and ability to add pictures to my waypoints means I can always reference old trips and hunts to better prepare for the next. When planning your next hunt, be sure to use Onyx to put you and your dog in the best situation you can. Use code GDIY20 at checkout to save 20% and know where you stand with Onyx. I, I don't know how it is with you, but even for me for chucker hunting, I, I do a lot of my chucker hunting solo. Um, I enjoy it. It's very, uh, it's very cathartic, and um, I honestly never feel alone because I have my dogs with me. So it's never this sense of loneliness. Uh, it's more of this opportunity to decompress, um, not to have to talk to anybody, you know, to sort of like sort through your thoughts for the week. And it's a, it's a bit of a meditative aspect um, uh, of my life. Why does it usually form or function when it comes to shotguns? You either hear about the looks or craftsmanship of this shotgun, while that shotgun over there in the corner hasn't been cleaned in two seasons, but supposedly fits and shoots like a dream. Why can't it be both? This is what Upland Gun Company does. They take your own personal measurements and will construct the very shotgun that should handle like a dream while getting you the looks and custom features that only you can decide on. Whether it's a side-by-side -side or over-under, English stock or full pistol grip, custom engravings such as your dog's portrait, even down to selecting the wood grain on your stock. Head on over to UplandGunCompany.com and build the dream gun that you would carry in the field with your dog for many seasons. Last fall, I made the change to a Final Rise Summit System vest and was blown away with not only the customization and durability, but the overall functionality. I can honestly say my setup directly impacted how many miles I cover because the design eliminates shoulder fatigue and discomfort while still providing the perfect amount of storage. I appreciate the waist belt design so much that in the training season I removed the straps and swapped the game bag out for the sidekick system game bag and I now have the perfect training belt set up for the long and hot training season. Go to FinalRise.com and check out all the available options that are all sourced and sewn right here in the USA. Alright everybody, welcome back to another episode of GDIY presented by Standing Stone Supply. My guest this time is Travis Warren, Mr. Upchucker himself. Travis, how you doing bud? Oh, I'm great. It's uh, it's wonderful to be on the other side. It's wonderful to uh, to get interviewed, and I hope I can be as interesting as your other guests. Yeah, well, we'll we'll put you to the test for sure. It is always kind of fun to flip the tables and kind of play guest on a podcast rather than hosting a podcast. But for the listeners that may may not know who you are or know about your podcast, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell everybody kind of what it is that you do. Well, yeah, I occupy the niche in the bird hunting market for sure, you know, and I, and I really focus uh, really highly and strictly almost to, to a degree on chucker hunting. Uh, and for those of your guests that don't know what chucker are, uh, chucker are predominantly uh, birds that are found out in the West, up in some big country, some big open country. Um, they live in coveys and, you know, it's uh, like I said, it's a bit of a subsect of bird hunters and, but you know, it's one of those things where 
I think for a lot of people, you know, it becomes an aspirational thing just because it it is kind of uh, specifically on the west side of the country. But yeah, so focus is 100% on, on on chucker hunting for the most part. You know, we dabble in some Himalayan snowcock and you know so, some other kind of fun species that we we hunt on the west. Um, it's been going for well, I guess six years now, and been a it's been a real fun ride in terms of be having these opportunities like today of of coming on board. But uh, so I'm situated in Reno, Nevada, so it's kind of right there in the Great Basin, as we call it. Uh, of the of the U.S. or the Western U.S. and um, yeah, I think it's actually nicely centrally based in terms of being able to get out and do a bunch of kind of different hunting. You know, about thirty minutes from grouse hunting up in Tahoe, um, I can bird hunt and still see my house. Uh, so you know, it's uh, it's it's pretty cool. So that's a little bit about who I am. I can kind of go down the rabbit hole a little bit more as we talk more, but yeah, that's me. Yeah, for sure, man. So I mean, Nevada. Like you said, there there's a number of opportunities outside of just Chucker. Uh, what was it about Chucker that captured your imagination that you kind of honed in on it? Because every species has something different to offer. And, and so, you know, it kind of resonates with different people in different ways. What was it about the Chucker specifically that just kind of hit home for you? Well, I think like most people, it's the first bird I ever had an opportunity to hunt. You know, I remember that... Uh, so I had a buddy. So we lived, my wife and I bought our first house and we bought kind of way out of town and right on the mountain behind us, uh, there was Chucker. And I didn't really, I didn't know anything about it. Wasn't uh, too big of a hunter at the time. Uh, but I had a buddy who asked me if I wanted to go Chucker hunting. And so, you know, I was like, sure. I didn't even have a shotgun. My dad had actually won uh, a Remington 870 at a, uh, what was it? Ducks Unlimited dinner, I think is what he did, is what, where he won it, right? And uh, so I said, yeah, I'm going to go out chucker hunting. And he said, oh, well, you know, here, why don't you take this shotgun? And I actually still have that shotgun. I, I, I still take it out. I turkey hunt with it. I take it Himalayan snowcock hunting. Um, I mean, you, you basically can't destroy a Remington 870 and everybody should probably have one. That's what I started with myself, man. 870s. I, I bet if you polled all the hunters in the country, especially wing shooters and, and duck hunters and stuff like that, how many people within that that poll would say that they got started by an 870? Yeah, and I think a lot of it is probably the economical aspect of owning a Remington 870. You know, they were, right. I mean, I, I haven't looked recently, but I mean, at the time they were like 250 bucks, you know? And so when, when you look at an entry-level shotgun, you know, and one that generally, you know, uh, you can drop it, you can, you know, probably run it through the mud and it'll still fire. You know, it's, it's most certainly the easiest entry-level gun you can get into. And, uh, I mean, like I said, I've had it for, gosh, I've, what, 12, 13, 14 years now, uh, I guess it would be. And yeah, maybe a little bit longer than that. That, that they make great boat paddles. I've used <laughs> them for quite a number of things, but yeah, you don't have to feel too guilty about, uh, using it for, you know, uses unintended by, by the manufacturers, I'm sure. But, uh, so you take the 870 and you're going out. Did you even know what a chucker was when he invited you or were you just along for the ride? You're like, yeah, sure. I'll go. Yeah, no, I was highly relying on him to tell me what it was that I was looking for. And, you know, we saw some birds fly and he told me that that's what they were. Uh, but I honestly never remembered. And it took me, so, you know, kind of keep in mind at this point that, you know, I, the whole bird hunting thing was is was so foreign and so new, and uh, you know the, this whole concept of using dogs and and 
you know, it was all just completely foreign to me. And I wasn't really even sure if it was something that I wanted to continue doing because, you know, I walked around forever, um, maybe saw some birds is what he, you know, he said that we did. I, you know, I wasn't really sure because uh, I don't know what I was looking for. <laughs> And, uh, you know, but I kept doing it because it was so close in proximity to my house. You know, I'd go up there and I'd hike around or I'd drive my truck up on the mountain, you know, and I'd, birds would fly off. And I'm like, oh, this is cool. And um, so I'd go around and hike. And, at, you know, at the time I just had a border collie, you know, so we'd go around and, and walk around out there. And my buddy had these two labs and um, we would, <laughs> they weren't really much for bird dogs, you know, and, and, but we'd go out and. We, we kind of got to this point where it was a joke where, uh, you know, we every time we decided we were going to sit down and take a break, um, we would get up and birds would fly away. And so, you know, we we ended up uh, that was kind of the story of chucker hunting for quite a few years. And his dogs were, were pretty bad. I remember one time we shot and his dog ran off and we spent the rest of the time looking for his dog. And, um, you know, it it really didn't stick as like something that I was truly, truly like passionate, big into uh, until I really started getting into the bird dog world and kind of discovering what that was. And a buddy of mine, uh, Jake Kincaid, who's been on the podcast, he actually had invited me out to go chucker hunting with him and he had three GSPs. And that's when I really saw, you know, how valuable dogs were and kind of how cool it was when the dogs were on point, you know, and there were birds there. So you kind of knew where you were going and heading and I mean, it was uh, it, it was an eye-opening experience for me, and then at that point, I was really hooked, and, and I said, "Oh, this is what I want to do. This is I'm I'm a hundred percent into this." So, you know, that's kind of where that's really I think where where I got bit by the bug. Yeah, real similar story to mine, man. Honestly, I mean, at, d- down to the eight seventy, like we previously mentioned, into I kind of entered into the hunting world like you. It was it was fun. It was something different. I enjoyed the process, but it wasn't really until like I got found the interest or the hook in the dogs that kind of brought it to where it was a priority or a passion in my life, really. So when you go out with your buddy and you and you see his short hairs and everything, you kind of see what the pointing dogs like. Was it just immediately you were hooked? Were you looking for dogs then? Like kind of walk me through the next steps. How quick did you take that deep plunge and go get your own do- dogs and run off the cliff, so to speak. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> and I actually laugh about this with him now, but I turned into that guy, right? I turned into that guy who was calling him every weekend and was like, Hey man, <laughs> Hey, can I go out with you? You know, like, Hey, Hey, I'd love to go out hunting with you. And, and you know, I, I don't know how it is with you, but even for me for chucker hunting, I, I do a lot of my chucker hunting solo. Um, I enjoy it. It's very, uh, it's very cathartic and, um, I'll honestly never feel alone cause I have my dogs with me. So it's never this sense of lo- loneliness. Uh, it's more of this opportunity to decompress, um, not to have to talk to anybody, you know, to sort of like sort through your thoughts for the week. And it's a, it's a bit of a meditative aspect, um, uh, of my life. And so, he was nice enough to be, he would either not respond back or, uh, he would, uh, he'd be like, Oh man, I'm going out with somebody. And, uh, you know, so it, it was, uh, you sort of realize like, ah, oh, I think I'm actually being a bit of a pain, you know, and, and I probably should stop 
calling him all the time and texting him. But, you know, it was just like you see how this thing works and you think, man, this is rad. Uh, I just want to keep doing it. And, and, you know, as you get into bird hunting more, you kind of realize that people have their own sort of things that they do and their own way of doing it, their own motivations for doing it and taking somebody along that really doesn't have anything to really like offer. uh, Yeah is really uh is can be challenging at times you know you know i don't know challenging would be the right word but just more or less like you know no unless you're bringing spots to the table or you got the dogs or you're the guy who always brings the great food with them you know like unless you're bringing something to the table you know it's hard to be that third wheel or even second wheel where you know you're just the guy tagging along <laughs> right it, it goes back i tell everybody it's like i don't ever expect when I take somebody brand new or link up with with them, I don't expect really anything out of them, especially that first trip. But to your point, if you keep calling and asking to come back, have something like bring something. I, I don't care if it's even you're you're the main one setting up camp while I deal with the dogs or something like just make yourself useful and, and help with the overall trip. And And that's something that. To your point, you you may or may not even be aware of you kind yeah. of overcrowding the the person or not, but you know it, it just kind of takes that experience and to become self aware and kind of look inward a little bit and be like, okay, this guy was hot and heavy trying to introduce me to it. Now I can't really get a hold of him. Maybe maybe <laughs> I, I I need to go buy him a bottle of bourbon or something like that. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think too, like the, one of the valuable things, like I got a, one of my really really close buddies now who um, is pretty new into chucker hunting, but you know. He, uh, his name's Derek Volpe. He's been on the show as well. And he, even in the beginning when he didn't have a dog, you know, he would bring spots to the table. Like he would go out on his own. He would find spots. He would, he really invested his time, you know, not just with me, um, but with going out and really learning it himself. And so when we would get together, you know, he'd be, he would say, Oh, I got this spot. I went and checked it out. It's got this and this. And I would be like, all right, let's go check it out. You know, and so he, you know, he brought that to the table and now he's got his own dog and he was just texting me this morning videos of Chucker, you know, and I'm like, well, where was that? And he's like, that's the new spot I found for us, man. And I'm like, that's so rad. <laughs> yep. and- so, you know, it's this, it's this, uh, you know, it's this, I wouldn't say quid pro quo, but you know, it's one of those things where, you know, if you, you know, to be a valuable hunting partner, you got to bring something to the table. Um, and, and so after that initial introduction, if you want to keep utilizing that person's knowledge is, you know, you, you have to, you have to do something to kind of, uh, make it a relationship rather than a one-sided relationship, you know? Yeah. That's a great way of putting it right there. Cause I mean, you, you're benefiting from, you know, if somebody has been hunting for 15, 20 years, just being able to have access and download some of that information from them. It took them 15, 20 years to accrue that knowledge and experience if all of a sudden you're just kind of going along with them and you're not helping out, you know, it's it. I don't I'm not going to sit here and say anybody that's like willing to introduce somebody to the sport is sitting there keeping tabs like, you know, oh, I did this, this and this for somebody. But it's going to it's going to go noticed if you keep coming along, coming along, coming along and you're you're not bringing anything to the table like the spots or the food or or whatever. Just helping plan the trip, man, that's. That goes a long way yeah. of just scoping out campgrounds, the routes, you know, stuff like that. Every little bit kind of helps in that regard. Yeah, but you know, it absolutely does. And I think that, uh, you know, it's an important and I think sometimes things that we don't talk about when we want to say, you know, we want to bring new hunters in and stuff like that. But you really don't give them a blueprint. 
you know you know it's it's sometimes i think the onus is put too much on the on the season tundra to to show somebody everything but really at the end of the day it's any it's like any other relationship that you have in life you know you got to put in as much as you you're wanting to get out of it and you know you just have to figure out what your role is given your experience at that moment you know whether it is you you know, making sure that you're helping pay for gas, you know, is a simple thing. You know, you might get turned down for it. I mean, I re- people try and pay, you know, buddies will try and pay for gas. And I always tell them, like, I'm going anyways, regardless of whether or not you're with me. So I don't need your gas money. Uh, but, you know, offering to pay or offering to pick up, you know, lunch or, you know, want something, you know, to make it something where, you know, like I said, it, it's a it's a it's a bit of a homogenous relationship in that sense where you're both working together towards a single goal rather than it just being one-sided. And, uh, you know, and I think that, like you said, I think the self-awareness is a really important thing and something initially I don't think I really had. And so I had to kind of learn over that awkward feeling of like, uh, you know, and I remember specifically, so, <laughs> um, so I, I text him and I said, Hey, I said, Hey, uh, I said, oh, if you're going out, man, I'd love to go with you. And he's like, oh, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to go out today. And and I saw him later in the day at work, right? And so this is like early morning, right? I saw him later in the day at work. And we were just kind of bullshitting. Excuse me if you're not allowed to cuss on the podcast. But um, he said, uh, he was like, oh, yeah, man, I went out this morning. And he caught himself. <laughs> and, and, and he kind of looked. And I, and I kind of, and I just didn't make a big deal about it. But I caught it, you know, and I was like, I think that for me was the realization when I went, okay, I think I'm being too much of a leech and I probably need to start figuring it out on my own uh, and and putting a little bit more personal effort into it rather than relying on a single person to to show me everything. Um, And if it really is something I want to do and it's really something that I'm I'm excited about, then I should probably put my own time and effort into it rather than just relying on him. And it was uh, it was an awkward situation. It was an awkward learning opportunity, but it was a learning opportunity nonetheless. Uh, and, and I think at that point, that's when I really started. Went, you know what? Okay. And I, you know, that's when I sought out and started uh, working with and volunteering my time with our local dog hunting group out here, uh, making new friends. Uh, that's when I started having the conversation with my wife about like I'd like to get a bird dog, and she's like, "Well, we have a dog," and I'm like, "He's a." He's a, he's a rescue border collie. Like, what am I supposed to do? He can't even stand when the broom handle falls on the ground in the laundromat. I don't think I can shoot around him. And uh, he can herd the chuckers down the down uh, the He was, you know, sweet boy, but he was he was damaged. We got him from the from the pound. You know, he was just so skittish. Yeah. And uh, and it took me about a year to convince my wife to allow me to get a dog. And she kept saying, no, no. And I remember specifically, we were actually, we took my folks live in Florida. We'd, we'd flown down to Florida for vacation and her and I had driven up to Savannah for a weekend just, you know, to get away for her and I. So we were up in Savannah, we were actually driving into Savannah and I was, and I said it one more time, I said, uh, I said, man, I said, I really want to, really want to get a dog, a hunting dog. And she said, mm. she said, and that's when she said I could get one. And I was like, my goodness, I was like, why did it take so long? She goes, well. You have so many ideas of things you want to do. If you don't, if you won't let something go for a long period of time, I know you're serious about it. And so, you know, that's, she's like, she's like, so finally I said, you know, finally I'm okay with it because it's been almost a year if you keep asking me. And uh, so I figured you were serious enough about it that it wasn't going to be a flash in the pan idea. 
There, there's a few things that admirable in that story. Number one is you picked up on the lesson from the guy of you didn't take it. You may have taken it personal, but I know a lot of people that would have taken that and gotten discouraged, you know, when he was just like, ah, I'm not going to go out today. And then you kind of circle back, link up with him, and he lets it slip. I know a lot of people that would take that kind of personal and may or may not even, you know, continue down the path to hunting. You know, they that might just turn them off to where like, oh, you know, this guy, he just lied to me and went without me and blah, blah, blah. What's this guy about? But you kind of took it in in the right light and, and kind of self-checked yourself and, and kind of took it to the next level. And, and that's what you're supposed to do if you want to take this stuff serious. But then the fact that like your wife is saying no to the dog, no to the dog, no to the dog, and you're being persistent enough. How many guys do you know that would have just shown up with a puppy? And then you, you're starting off day one with the puppy and a pissed off wife in the house. That's not a good way to start. <laughs> well, let me give you, I'll give you context to, to the way that I managed my relationship with my wife. So we've been together 21 years today. So today is our 15-year anniversary. We were together six years before we got married. So we've been together since she was 19 and I was 20. Uh, so we've been together more. We've been together longer mm. than we were apart in our lifespan so far. Um, you know, and my wife, she grew up. Hunt, she grew up with her dad hunting, and he would, and they raised chucker and pheasant at the house. So she had, she would have to go and, and she'd have to collect chucker eggs for breakfast, and you know they'd go out and they, you know. She'd have to go out the pellet gun and shoot him for dinner, you know, and stuff like that. So she she grew up she grew up with it, right? And, you know, sometimes she'll remind me. She's like, I didn't marry my father, you know. And you weren't a you weren't a hunter when we first met, you know. And it wasn't, you know, I wasn't a, a hunter when we first met. You know, I was racing dirt bikes and 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 stuff like that, you know. And and I actually only got I didn't really have any exposure to hunting when I was a kid. My dad went on one elk hunt when I was when I was like eleven in Colorado, and that was apart from like uh shooting quail with a bb gun at my grandpa's house uh from the balcony um that was pretty much the exposure to to, to hunting that i had and it, and really you know and i've told this story and i've written a story about it before but you know my my father-in-law it's he just his whole life has always been around hunting and fishing and he really doesn't have any interest outside of that and so to have a conversation with him it was, uh, unless it, unless you had a common interest of hunting or fishing, it was very, very hard to get his, to get his attention. So I kind of got into hunting less of as a pure interest and more of a, a kind of a selfish interest of wanting him to like me and wanting to have something to talk about with him. And ultimately, you know, it's, it, it, and wanted to gain his favor, you know, to be able to get his blessing to marry his daughter. And, and you know, ultimately it's sort of morphed into its own, uh, its own being. And it's, it definitely has become, uh, you know, it's become part of the fabric of who I am. And, and, uh, you know, for, and that's why I think that, you know, however you end up finding your way to hunting, um, you know, it's, I think everybody has different paths. Some people were introduced when they were kids, uh, some people were COVID hunters, you know, where they were so bored and there was nothing to do. And they saw like a meat eater episode <laughs> and they thought right. that looks fun, you know, or you just had, you just had an interest in doing it. Maybe you wanted to get into organic meat. I, I, I yeah, there's, there's so many stories that I've encountered over my interviews with people about how they got into it, you know? And I think that the, the, the main understanding is that everybody has a unique story and you're, you're you know, and I think that that's, I think that ultimately probably shapes your motivations as to what you do and how you do it. Um, 
I remember going deer hunting with my father-in-law and I went with him and his buddy and, you know, and they're at a kind of a point in their hunting kind of hunting journey where, you know, they, they really just use it as an excuse to get out of the house for a week, you know, and go hang around and drive around the desert, you know, in the mountains and stuff like that. And if they shot something like great, if they didn't, they didn't care. You know, it was not about that, the quote unquote hunting aspect of it. It was just about going on a camping trip right. with your buddies. So I'm a, I'm a young guy and I'm thinking, you know, like I want to go and hike to the top of the mountain and I want to go, you know, like really get into it. And, uh, excuse me. And, and, you know, he was really honest with me and said, Hey, you know, Travis, I'm just, that's not where I'm at in my hunting career now. You know, like I could care less if I shot something, I just enjoy being out here. And, uh, he goes, if he goes, you really need to probably find people your own age or your own fitness level. Um, because, you know, honestly we were driving and he said, you know, if you want to get a deer, you need to go to the top of that mountain. And he points to the top of the mountain because that's where you should be going to hunt for deer. Um, and they just literally would just drive around and glass and, you know, they were, they didn't really care. You know, that wasn't their motivation was to shoot some, if some came across and they were like, yeah, that looks great. Then they would, but you know, they weren't hot into it. Um, and so that's when I really, that's a, another pivotal point in my sort of hunting story where I, I really had to find people that were uh, of the the fitness level that I was, that had the same ideals that I did in terms of what they wanted to do and that they, did they want to hike to the top of the mountain? Um, yeah, did they not want to hunt? You know, so, so really it was starting to shape my idea of like, okay, what, what is a hunting partner? What's a good hunting partner? Um, what am I looking for in somebody that I want to spend time with hunting out, you know, in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, you know, so that kind of ultimately kind of led me, uh, to do a lot of things myself, but, you know, I, I can definitely say that over the course of my hunting, uh, journey, I've, I've only had a, you know, the, probably the number of people I can count on one hand that I've truly spent a lot of time hunting with. Because you really start to parse out those people that you really want to spend time with and you really value spending time with. And and uh, there's no better way to really determine if you like somebody or not, or you align with somebody, um, maybe philosophically as well, is by spending a lot of time uh, without distractions with those people. And all the all those are great points, man. And it's kind of reflective of everyday life. You know, you talk to that you hear all the time, keep your circle small. And, you know, that doesn't mean that you don't help other people or extend the offer or the, or the helping hand when you can, but you're going to keep that circle small and have, have those really close, meaningful relationships and friendships. And it's the same thing in the hunting friendships as well as a good hunting partner is a close friend. If you're going to consistently go out, spend time, you know, embrace the suck in a lot of ways. Sometimes, you know, not every hunt is, is an enjoyable walk, so to speak. So like just being able to kind of, everybody kind of understands what you're out there after chasing. And the fact that, that they were forthcoming and just kind of gave you a heads up, like, Hey, I know that you want to be up there on top. I know that you want to be chasing those birds, but we just, we don't have the same fire for it anymore right now. Everybody's in a different stage as you kind of alluded to. And that's a great lesson for everybody because it's like, we can all go take new people out, introduce everybody, but that doesn't mean that you're automatically going to work your way into somebody's hunting core group. Oh, absolutely. You know, and I don't mean to be too tangential. I'll try and keep, uh, I'll try and keep on topic, but you know, when you talked about self-awareness, you know, when, when my buddy kind of let slip that he'd gone out and hunted by himself, you know, uh, yeah, I think that, um, I think that you, you can always, the way that you handle the things 
in your life where you feel slighted, I think, um, really should be a reflective opportunity towards your character and sort of how you deal with conflict. And, and really, a lot of the times, your issues are not generally somebody else's responsibility. It's how you respond to them is is really your responsibility. Um, you can feel upset and that's okay, you know, but it's how you deal with that information and what you do with it that really defines your character. You know, like in that sense, I could have got upset with him and I could have said, you know, uh, that's, that's crap, you know, like you, know, you lied to me, da, 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 da. But uh, I've always tried to, I've always tried to find, uh, um, I, I'm a, I'm a flawed individual for sure. Uh, you know, there's no doubt about that. And, and, but, you know, I always try and look at those situations and realize what, what is it about my, maybe my response for me that maybe uh, caused that person to maybe not want to hang out with me? Um, or, or what is it about uh, the way that I've been interacting, which is, you know, causing this response. And I think that for me, like we talked about, you know, it was this, I didn't really bring anything to the table. You know, so for him, it was like, what's, you know, I'm not going to sit there and keep taking this guy to my spots all the time um, when he's not, he's not bringing anything to the table to, to make this a relationship. And, you know, uh, you know, we may be friends, but not a friend that I want to hunt with all the time. Uh, right. And, and so, you know, for me, it was like, okay, you know, I, I realized that it was less of a, I, I less felt slighted. I more felt embarrassed that I didn't pick up on it earlier. That, that it took him feeling like he had to lie to me uh, to make me feel, to, to make me realize that I had maybe uh, overstepped a little bit uh, in terms of my reliance on him uh, to provide this experience for myself. And so, uh, you know, it was, it definitely was a bit of an embarrassing, uh, it was an embarrassing revelation. And so I, I really had to, I really sat with that and said, okay, you know, I do think he's a friend and I like him. Uh, I don't want him to feel like I'm a burden. So I, I need to go and, and take this seriously. If this is something that, I, that, that if this is something I really enjoy doing, I got to take it seriously. And so that's how I dealt with it, you know, and I got, you know, my daughters are 12 and 14 right now and they're starting to head into their lives where, you know, the way that feeling slighted by friends or, you know, friends responses, they aren't exactly what they wanted, you know, and it's this evaluative opportunity to say, okay, well, well, okay, first of all, is this an issue? You know, second of all, is this a you issue or is this a them issue? And, and a lot of the times it's a, it's a us issue, you know, it's a you issue because it's, it's how you choose to allow somebody's reaction to, to affect you and how you choose to allow somebody um, to influence and affect your life. So if they don't like you or they don't want to be your friend or they're talking trash about you, then you have to, you know, say, Hey, if they're talking trash about you, if they don't really matter, then what they say really doesn't matter. And it doesn't not going to affect your life. And then secondly, you know, like if it does matter, then why are they talking trash about you? What is it that you did? What was your response? What did you not do that you're not aware of that caused that response? And so, and I know it's getting a little bit deep and I apologize for that, but you know, it's uh, you know, but I think that all relationships are the same, you know, you just, you know, you have to realize what are you doing or what are you not doing that's causing this response? And then it's up to you once you have that information. And once you're armed with that information, it's up to you to decide how you want to respond to it. Right. And I, I think anybody listening to this and anybody in life in general, if you just take a second and and just stop and think and reconsider some of the uh, the happenings and how things like 
transpired with certain people or, or groups of people, I think that you you might recognize certain things that that we've all done to kind of cause some of the outcomes to to happen the way they did. I know, I mean, we're all guilty of it. It's part of life, and and it's just funny to where you know life begets hunting, and hunting begets life, and and all this stuff. It it, it all intermingles. Uh, for uh, those of us that really have truly have a passion in it and just, I mean, to circle back, you know, this guy was trying to be nice about it and he got essentially caught, but it woke something up in you to where you took the next step. You got a little bit more serious about it and then in comes your first dog, right? So to fast forward after you get your dog and you start taking it more serious, you start self-educating. Is this guy, do you guys still kind of hunt together at all anymore? Or is it just kind of y'all branched off and and it is what it is to this point? Or did y'all kind of circle back around once you got kind of got on his level, so to speak? We don't really hunt. Uh, we don't hunt anymore together. Um, probably last time we hunted together was maybe maybe three, four years ago. But I, I mean, he texted me last night, a picture of his new puppy. I mean, we talk all the time. I mean, it's just, he, you know, one of the things I realized is that he has his buddies that he hunts with. And I now have my circle of buddies that I hunt with. And we have a common interest of hunting and dogs. And we're very excited for each other's success. Um, but it's one of those things where um, it, it probably will never be, you know, it, it will never be that kind of relationship where we're, hunt all the time together. I mean, it's, it's been yeah. three or four years since we've hunted together. Um, and, uh, it's just the way, I mean, it's, it, but it's completely fine. And, and then you have to realize that just because you don't hunt together doesn't mean you can't be buddies, but you know, when people have been doing it for a certain period of time, they've sort of developed their, uh, their core group of people. And so, you know, you, and their style, not everybody's styles style. mixed together. I, I've got some good buddies that we've gone hunting together. Did, didn't didn't jive didn't didn't exactly click the way that they wanted to hunt and I hunted and and but we're still buddies we just don't hunt together and then I got some guys that I only hunt with <laughs> and like outside of hunting there really isn't that much of a relationship but uh you know and that but that's part of it man it's uh it's all just finding your people but uh let let's let's get back into the dogs what when you just got the permission from the wife to get the first dog what what did you do? Did you just you know go find the first short hair on on a list, or or kind of walk me through uh, how you got the dog home once you got the permission? So, you know, as 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 much as I'd sort of hung out and tried to learn as much as I could uh, from the dog hunting club, I, I asked a, somebody that I, I asked somebody. I said, hey, you know, I'm looking for a short hair. Um, it just seemed like the dog that that I wanted to get because it was what I was seeing. Um, after doing some research, I'm like, you know, I've got two kids. I don't really know what I'm doing. So this dog, my a German short hair seems like it'd be a little bit more resilient to my, to my, uh, inadequacies as a trainer. Um, I, you know, I didn't have the money to train the dog myself, you know, to pay somebody to do it. So I, everything I, and I wanted to do it myself. So, you know, I had read books and I kind of felt like, okay, I could figure this out. And so, um, I got kind of put on, um, put in the direction of a, of a, of a breeder in California. And then that, that breeder had kind of, it didn't really work out, you know, like I had an idea of what I wanted. And then ultimately there was another puppy available from somebody she'd done a co-breeding with. And so, uh, you know, she put me on to her. And so that's ultimately how I ended up with, uh, with Hazel, my dog now, you know, I think in terms of my first dog, not having any idea, I think she was a great dog because she's a really good family dog. 
Um, she's she's an easy to for for a short hair. She's really mellow. Um, she's an excellent retriever. I say she's a fifty percent dog because fifty percent of the time she'll decide she wants to point. The other fifty percent, I don't know what she's thinking. Um, <laughs> but you know, one of the things that you you know for one of the things I, I've come to realize or you know, even identified earlier was that uh, you know you got to live with these dogs for five and a half to six months out of the year where you're not hunting. And so, you know, they have to be a dog that you can, you know, all my dogs are house dogs. And so, you know, you got to, it has to be a dog that I could, I could live with. And that would be, you know, at the time you had younger children. And so, you know, I didn't want a dog that was just so crazy that it was knocking the kids over that, you know, it was just kind of an added stress that I didn't need. Um, and so, you know, I spent a lot of time, uh, spent, I spent a lot of time retriever, you know, retrieving training with her, like, you know, with a bumper down the hallway and sort of exposing her to that. And so I think that's why she's a really, really good retriever is because that was probably more the emphasis I put, even though we did a lot of pointing stuff. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I probably, I, I planted pigeons too much with her where I didn't have a, I didn't have a trap. I didn't have a release uh, for that. So it was, they were all carded birds. And so, you know, kind of taught her that she could get closer than, than she really can with wild birds. And so I think it kind of was a bit detrimental because, you know, she was, she try and get super close. And in that sense, she would bump birds. Um, and so, uh, and then all she wanted to do is retrieve all the time. That was just like for her, the reward. And so, you know, uh, I made the mistake early on of shooting, you know, non-pointed birds. You know, I was like, well, I've already been up here hiking all day. And he, <laughs> it's, wine, it's, it's dying. So, uh, <laughs> you know, and that's always, a, that was always a mistake. And, you know, and then I realized like, you know, I probably created the monster that I have now. And so, I had to kind of slow down like after the first couple of seasons and, and, and I had to utilize like resources like my buddy, Ryan Mulcahy, you know, and I would call him and say, uh, man, this is where I'm at. And he said, well, you need to stop shooting birds that they don't point, you know? And I'm like, okay, yep. fair enough. You know? And I, after I did that for a <laughs> while, you know, then, then it really started to, to take shape and, you know, and, and now since I've had a second dog, there's a, they have a, it's it's sort of this team aspect where the the younger dog is is the stud where you know she'll go out and find birds, uh, but she's not she's not the most uh, comprehensive retriever. Uh, but you know, so I kind of keep the the short hair close to me now, a little bit closer within a hundred yards, so that she can that she's a little bit closer, and that even if she points a bird and she's not going to hold it for very long, that at least if she points, I'm close enough that I can have an opportunity and reward her for it. And then I kind of teach, I kind of use her as a retriever more or less. Well, and I mean, you know, as well as I do, when, when you get the opportunity to interview so many people like we both do, so much of that story is, is reflective of everybody else's story. I mean, you, you, the, especially the first dog aspect is like, what's the easiest thing that you're going to be able to do? Throw a sock down the, down the hallway and, and build that retrieve drive. And then, you know, again, first first dog you're asking everybody what do i do with this dog what do i do it and you have so many people in your ear saying you know birds make a bird dog pour the birds on the dog pour the birds on the dog and i personally hate that saying birds make a bird dog because it's like it's it's lacking context it's quality birds 
are making bird dogs, like you still have to have a purpose or intentionality behind the birds. You just can't just go throw a million birds at them and, and expect them to come away with it. And then to your point, yeah, when you go when you go hunting with the dog, especially in the first season or two, and you're amped up, we got a bird dog, it's time to shoot birds and find birds, and you don't have any discipline around the actual dog-bird connection in those first, like, really exposure seasons when you really think about it, you are building what, you know, we all have the dog that we deserve to have is how I put it. And so everything that goes into sure. it, it's, it's just so funny to where like what you just described is Hazel, you know, with that's what the first dogs are for. We're supposed to learn on them. Who knows what she would have turned into if she was, you know, brought up with somebody else or was the second dog in your lineup and you, you know, yeah. it's just, it is what it is, but you're still utilizing her. It's not like she's useless. It's not like she's back home on the couch and you can't hunt with her. You're still hunting right. with her. You just have to know how to use yes. her and when and where and how. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, it's funny when I, when I do an interview with somebody, I always kind of listen for something which ultimately shapes the name of the episode. And so, you know, it almost seems like, uh, it almost seems like the name of this episode should be building relationships because, you know, it's, 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 <laughs> it's this aspect of, you know, building relationships with, with pers- prospective hunting partners uh, and people. I, I already wrote it down. <laughs> hunting relationships, man. And building a relationship yeah, with your I dog. I do the same thing. And building a relationship <laughs> with your dog. Because you're absolutely right. I think you get, you absolutely get the dog you deserve and you get, and, and, you know, it's, it's much the same in anything when, you know, how, what you emphasize is what the, you know, is what they, they learn. And so, um, you know, I've been very fortunate in that my buddy, Jason Hayes, who owns at Burnt Creek, at Burnt Creek Gun Dogs, he, uh, he, he boards my dogs when, when we go on trips. And so while the dogs are there on summer camp, they're also on birds. He's also working them. And I've seen a really huge change over the last two seasons with her in terms of her ability to, you know, to, to find birds, to point birds independently. Um, and she's, and the last couple of years, she's actually really turned uh, the corner and she's probably more of a 75% dog than a 50% dog now, you know? And so there you it's go. been pretty cool to see somebody with a little bit more of a deft hand um, uh, kind of help bring some of that, some of that out of her, even at an, an older age, uh, you know, and then kind of fast forward to, to, to Harper, my wire hair. I mean, I think one of the things I've learned the most over time is, is really um, looking and understanding what a good breeding looks like because, and, and finding a good breeder, because I, I think, you know, and not to talk anything negative about anybody, but the line that Hazel came out of was a little bit more, it was a show dog line, but with an emphasis on uh, like field trial stuff, you know, so not Mm. a lot, not wild bird hunting. You know, and so I think that in terms of conformity, she's an incredibly beautiful dog. Um, but in terms of like her hunting prowess, when I got my wire hair and you see what a what a good hunting line is and, and the genetics of a good hunting line and, and how that breeder develops even the dog up to like 12 weeks old, because that was I would think she was actually 15 weeks when I got her you know, like what the breeder does with the dog during their puppy, during that puppy stage and the exposure that they had, like, my gosh, like if you want to talk about a dog that was just gift wrapped for hunting, like that's my wire hair Harper. I didn't really 
I exposed her to some stuff, but I, I had her at like three months on pigeons and she was pointing pigeons with a good wind, like 30 yards out stuck still. And I could yeah. walk around her and she was that, she was that staunch. And I was like, Oh my gosh, like this is fantastic. This, if this is what I can expect, <laughs> um, this is fantastic. And you know, that's when I really started understanding the value of good breeding, you know, and of course I'd seen other people's dogs over, you know, over the years and kind of see what they had. And they said, yeah, you know, it's, they would talk a lot about the breeder and the breeding and the genetics of the dog. And, you know, you don't really understand. It's a bit esoteric, you know, when somebody says it's the genetics, it's like, well, what does that mean? You know, like, yeah. And then you start seeing it and you start talking to breeders that are reputable and you start realizing that, you know, when you start talking to breeders who breed dogs from what you're interested in, you start seeing dogs that, that really do act uh, differently uh, and have an innate uh, ability to do that task much more than a dog that maybe just was bred for companionship, you know, or, uh, or, or whatever the case is. I mean, it's probably very much still deep down their DNA and you could, and you could bring it out. But when you have somebody who, you know, has, a has a dog, you know, that has a breeding program where they're just focused hundred percent on duck hunting or hundred percent on quail hunting or pheasant hunting or whatever the case is, you know, that breeder specifically is, is, is breeding a dog for that task. And then you start seeing that dog from a very young age, you start seeing that those things blossom and, and come out with actually very little, very little effort from you, from you as the trainer, man, it's uh it's a game changer. And it really, it really, uh, I think for me and my experience hunting had exponentially in, like increased the joy of being out there. And then it was just the challenge of, of figuring out how these two dogs work together. Cause Hazel was the only dog for, for a number of years and she hated the puppy. The puppy was an inconvenience and the, she was, it was almost like she was waiting for the puppy to leave. You know, it was like, we were just babysitting the puppy. <laughs> you know, she's like, when is this dog yeah. leaving? Cause this dog's in my way. And, uh, and, and it took a couple of years for the dogs to actually, uh, you know, uh, Harper less because Harper was, a, you know, she's young and she's kind of just, she's none the wiser, but it took a while for Har for Hazel to, um, adjust yes. to it. And it really was, it wasn't until we were behind the house because right behind my house is a, is a big open field and we've got always has a, you know, nice big, uh, covey of about 30, uh, Valley quail that live in there. And so we've got free wild birds for training. And, um, it, it really took up until like the third year for Hazel to, when I really started to see this, 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 uh, this partnership develop and, and, and work between the two of them, because I remember distinctly seeing Harper go on point and then Hazel back with no input from me. And I was like, she knows how to back without a woe, you know, like this is really cool. <laughs> yeah. They start respecting each other. It takes a while to build that respect, especially a young pup. It's almost like there's a proving ground where the older dog's like, oh, yeah, okay, young young pup, you're, you know, I'm the one that finds birds. You should follow me. And then it's just like sometimes it takes a little while. Some older dogs are quicker. Some of them, I tell everybody, it kind of takes however long it takes, and and they'll figure it out to where it's like the young pup almost have, has to prove their their worth so to speak for the older dog before the older dog's like okay yeah i'll respect that point yeah absolutely and i think that they too have to see that that older dog has to see that when that puppy's on point that if a bird gets up in front of them then they realize 
that there's a trust factor and oh if this dog stops it's probably because there's birds there and I'm going to honor that, which is why it's called an honor or a back, you know? <laughs> exactly. It's like they have to build that relationship, right? <laughs> Back building to building relationships. relationships. Building relationships. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's been a fun journey, you know, and I'm, I'm not the most, you know, uh, you know, deft, deft dog handler in the world. And I'm not the most deft trainer. You know, I have my very, very narrow experience with two dogs, but, uh, you know, I've learned a lot from both of them in terms of, you know, really kind of a how to, how to understand your dog's behavior and when it changes, when they're quote unquote birdie, you know, what that means. Because I remember going out with a, I remember going, I remember going out with people, uh, you know, I remember going out with a guy who had a, a setter and I never hunted with a setter before and, and dog would always stop on crests of the hill and like the tail up, you know, and I'm, I would say like, is it, is the dog on point? You know, like is there are birds there and, uh, they're like, he's like, no, he just likes to stop on crests of hills and look and, you know, and so I'm like, God, man, that's annoying as hell. It yeah, makes me think I've, that there's birds there all the time. I, I've hunted with a few dogs like that to where they'll just kind of go 50 to hundred yards out and just stop and kind of look around. And, and yeah. if you're not used to, and you can't read that dog very well, but it's like to, to us, we don't know that dog. It looks like a point. And, yeah, you know, this sure. I, I've seen short hairs do it as well as setters. And it just, it gets me every time. I'm like, just keep running. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, it's, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's most certainly, I mean, there's, there's, yeah, you learn your dogs and, and, you know, sometimes you can see, you know, if you hunt with a dog, with another dog long enough, you can learn that dog's behavior and you can kind of start to read that dog's behavior, but you'll never understand a dog's behavior better than you understand your own dog's behavior it's just what you're what you spend the most time looking at and seeing and um and yeah it's a it's it's part of the building the relationship you know (laughs) well let's build a relationship with the birds you know let's let's get into chucker a little bit because i have yet to actually experienced chucker hunting yet so at the time of uh, us recording this i'm actually heading out in two days uh, on my Western loop. And, and within that Western loop, uh, I'm going to be trying my hand at, at chucker hunting. Oh, nice. And, uh, and, and so, you know, I, I'm excited. I always love trying something new, but you know, everybody, th- th- there's a lot to unpack there. If you don't, you don't know what you don't know. And so like, I'm familiar with the basics and stuff like that, but <laughs> you know, kind of guide me through, Where are you going? uh, I'm going to go up to Idaho. Okay. And, and so, Perfect. you know, I'm excited. It's something that I've been wanting to do for a few years. You know, we always go back to the tried and true, you know, what's the true king of the, of the birds? Is it rough grouse? Is it chucker? And, and, and I've got, I, I've kind of always left my opinion out of it just because I haven't tried or attempted chucker yet, but I'm excited to try it out. So kind of for, for, everybody listening to this, that is kind of like me to where they know the basics or whatever, but they want to go try it. What's your, kind of guidance what are you telling everybody that's going on their first chucker hunt what are you telling them to look for some of the key elements what to hone in on the food sources all, all that fun stuff kind of walk us a to z on how to you know how to do this whole chucker hunting game yeah it's, it's one of those things where every creature on earth whether it's a human or an animal requires water right so it's always easiest you know, when you're looking for animals, you always want to start by trying to find out where the water is, and not just where the seasonal water is necessarily, but where the 
perennial water will be, you know? So if there's a spring or a creek or a lake or a river or whatever the case is, you know, that's always a good place to start because they got to drink water some way or some, somehow. And, um, and then, you know, with, with chugger hunting, you know, it's, uh, you know, people will say, oh, it's, it's easy to just find the steepest crap you can find. And then that's where they'll be. <laughs> well, I can tell you that this year you're going to have a good time. It's, you know, I've already seen, I've seen at least three generations of birds within the same groups, you know, that they've had like two clutches, even, you know, so I'm sure that there's some places they could even have three this year, you know, just because of the amount of water, the Mormon crickets that we're in that are still out and about, you know, there, there's a, there's a food source. It's just so good right now. And with all the, the nice green up, there's a bunch of, you know, there's grasshoppers and all kinds of other good food for these birds to eat. So I think you're going to have a fantastic time going into Idaho. Idaho is great. I didn't go last year. I went the year before and man, it was so much fun. I mean, it was so much fun. And the same walk I shot yeah. Huns, Chucker and a rough grouse. It's Idaho. Idaho is a great place to go. And there's, you don't oh, have, there's not just like one place to go in, in Idaho. There's quite a few places you can go. Um, just much like Nevada where you can just have just such a fun time. And so I'm excited for you. I think that that's a, a good choice and they open a little bit earlier than everywhere else. And so it's uh, you know, you'll be have that opportunity, but you know, checker predominantly I've always felt like to want, like to, to face water. So when you, when you find that water source, you know, I start looking up and I look for elevation. I do want to find some steep country. Uh, they like the rim rock. That's where they generally will roost. You know, they find it uh, a safe location for them, both for storm purposes, but also, you know, for birds of prey, um, you know, because obviously that's one of their their main uh, predators are going to be the birds of prey. So, you know, being in the rocks, they find security and safety there. So they're going to roost there at night. And so they're going to come, they're going to start feeding down. Uh, they usually get to water. It's kind of, it could change anywhere from like nine to 11 in the morning. They'll, they'll work their way down to water or the water, and then they'll start feeding their way back up. You know, this time of year, they like to, you know, if you find some rock outcroppings and some open, like open grass hillsides, you know, they'll like to be out that and they'll feed because they, they will at certain times of the year, you know, they'll eat cheat grass. They, they like seeds. Um, obviously you need to get, to get pebbles for the crop, you know, to be able to process the food down. So, and I'm not, if you're not familiar with what rim rock looks like, it's exactly the way that it sounds. <laughs> it's rocks that it's rocks that rim, um, you know, the sides of slopes, the, 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 the crests of ridges, um, you know, areas that look like bands of rocks, you know, those are, if you're going to be in an area where, you know, you have steep country water, and you also have the rim rock, then you're probably in a good spot to start looking uh, for birds. You know, if you can find areas that have like a lot of grasses, like green grass near uh, areas that have rim rock, uh, then you're really going to find yourself in a, in a good location to be able to find uh, to be able to find birds. You know, obviously, it's it's something where as long as you know you're in checker country, as long as like the Department of Wildlife claims that there's birds in that area, then you're you know it's a good place to look. If you're in like Minnesota and trying to look for stuff like that, you're probably not going to find birds, checker for that reason. But um, yeah, you know, in the West, you know, there the checker actually they then have quite a bit of terrain, especially that the terrain I just described. You know, it's. Uh, you know, whether or not it's a very small group or there's a large population, 
but uh you know in the mornings they like to sun themselves as well so those open hillsides where they get that morning sun it warms them up you know and they can maybe start moving around feeding they're a cubby bird too so i mean it could be a cubby of five it could be a cubby of 20 or 30 or 40 you know it just depends early season what happens is that you know those uh, the female chucker uh it will bring their broods together and so that's why you have these sort of like quote unquote like super cubbies because all these birds come together when they when they go off to mate and they go off to nest these birds these pairs can fly up to three miles away from, from the location from which they flew from uh to nest because they, they become highly the males become highly territorial when the females are on their nests or when they're mating so they that's sort of how you get that that exponential growth or, or spreading of the chucker population is that these birds fly off such large distances comparatively to the size of them uh, in order to, to nest and stuff like that. And so they'll bring these birds, they'll bring the broods back together. And then that's why you see, like I did the other day when I was up uh, with the dogs and, you know, we see three generations of birds together, you know, uh, which is amazing this time of year, because this time of year, normally they're, you know, they're, they might still have some of their, their, you know, their juvenile feathers, but I mean, I'm talking like, like little chicks, you know, like mm. chicks that are maybe, maybe baseball size. Yeah. Baseball size, like, like teeny birds, you know? And, and um, so anyways, yeah, they bring them together. And that's why you get these, these super cubbies. And then as, as the hunting season and as the birds mature, they probably break, you know, they'll break off in areas and they'll become smaller populations, you know, and they may occupy like a same mountain range, but they're all, you know, they could be, you know, in smaller pockets at that point, not those super cubbies. What What about the dog work? If you could build the ideal uh, dog to, to chase these birds with, what are we talking about in terms of range, caution, you know, capabilities? Because you hear all the time, you know, it, it seems to happen at least, you know, to somebody throughout the year to where chucker country, what you just described is is pretty steep. It's gnarly. It's hazardous. Uh, so like, talk to me about what's the, your requirements for your dogs. Is there a certain level of steadiness that you require, or do we just kind of trust the fact that there's some sort of level of self-preservation within these dogs to not go running off the cliff, chasing a bird? Yeah. Do you have, uh, there's all, there's a lot to unpack in that. So I think that the most important thing for, uh, for a chucker dog is that you're going to have a dog that, that will stay staunch and point birds and then a dog that is actually a good retriever because, you know, when those birds fly, you know, it's much like, uh, you know, it's much like, you know, blue grouse where they like to be on an area that's got a bit of an angle. So when they launch, they can fly long distances, right? They're not flying straight across on a flat country. They're flying down a hill. Uh, and so Chucker, when they launch, they could be, you know, comparatively to your axis, you know, they could be 50 feet off the ground by that point, you know, when you shoot them. And then they could just lock. And then what they'll do is they'll, they'll do what we call Kevin Costner, you right from from Dance with Wolves when he's on the horse <laughs> and he's open his arms. Um, you know, it's called getting Kevin Costner, where you'll shoot him and you'll hit him, but they'll lock their wings and they'll just coast down the hill. Sail down, yeah. and then they might you know expire while they're in their air, and then they just fall down. But now they're, I mean, it's not it's not obscene to think that they could be two hundred yards down the down the mountain at that point based on the trajectory in which they f- were flying. So being it, you know, unless you want to continue to walk 200 yards down the mountain, 300 yards down the mountain, walk back up, do this. I mean, when you're hunting, when you're chucker hunting, you want to try and find the elevation that they're at 
and you want to try and maintain it by side hilling, you don't want to keep going up and down, up and down because it's a huge uh, energy expenditure and it's uh, it can it will smoke you pretty quickly. So you want a dog that can retrieve and a, and a dog that can retrieve quite well so that you don't have to keep going up and down the mountain, up and down the mountain, because not, not to mention too, that, you know, when those birds fly down, if you, you know, if you don't mark it and keep your eye on the bird, by the time you get down there, the terrain looks really different from what you saw a hundred or 200 yards up the mountain. So when you're down there kind of looking and the birds, it's, the birds are kind of a, they're kind of a grayish color you know, they're, they're a model gray, not a model gray, but they're, they're a gray slate gray color. And, and it, it's really, they do a great job of camouflaging themselves into the countryside, especially if, you know, with the rocks and the cheatgrass and stuff like that, you know, they end up, you know, so having a good bird dog that can sniff them out and can retrieve them is great. Cause you know, like I said, I mean, I, you know, if you, if you don't mark that bird exactly where it's at and just take a beeline for it, uh, which you can't always do in checker country because of maybe a rock cliff or something like that, where, how it looks can look a lot different. So you want a dog that can point because what will happen is that, you know, if you have a dog that is, so I'll, I'll, I'll say for me specifically, I really don't like my dogs to, to really hunt much further out to three or 400 yards in front of me. You know, my, my older puppy or the puppy, I call her puppy. She's three now, but, um, the wire hair, I know she'll stay within 200 yards. She'll, she'll work out 200 yards when she starts expanding out past 200 yards when she gets to 300 and she's pushing past 300 i know she's on birds whether she's tracking birds or whether she's winding them and she's moving with them she, i know she's she's on birds and i gotta start moving in that direction of her when she stays within that 200 yard kind of kind of um, cast then she's just looking and working and finding so that's what i understand for the behavior of the dogs for, for my dogs and so you know i know that there's people who you know say that they like dog you know their dog runs 700 yards and yada 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 and i'm like that's ridiculous in checker country because it you know if your dog's on point 200 yards ahead of you and you're walking on a on a, an incline that's like this you know and it's shale at times and you're sliding you know to walk 200 yards could take you five ten minutes depending on what the country looks like and right. and so you know those birds too they'll get they'll get a little antsy if they can sense the dog there and they'll start walking off you know and so you know it's either the dog will stay staunch and basically point where the birds were but you kind of you know you do want your dog to be intuitive enough and independent enough to be able to 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 follow the birds but not to overly pressure them to cause them to fly so that's something that uh you know when you when you're looking at what kind of expectation you want from your dog you want your dog to be able to work close enough for you where you can feel like you can get in and get a good shot and also you want the dogs to work out far enough to whereas you're not having to cover all the country yourself because it's oh, yeah. it you know the dogs you have dogs for a reason you have a dog so you don't have to go to the top of the mountain all the time that you your dog will go up there and if there's if there's no birds up there then you don't have to walk up there so, you know, you want your dog to have that independence and understanding, and it's probably going to take your dogs a little bit of time to understand how to work that country. But once they figure it out, you know, once they understand kind of what they're looking for and the birds and, and kind of how to work that country, then, you know, it'll be a lot easier for you uh, in terms of your expectations and kind of what, what you, how you can understand how to, how to sort of, uh, uh, evaluate and, and, and decide how you're going to work country. 
some people have strategies where, you know, they'll basically say, and I'm, I'm as guilty of this as the next person, you know, where they, you know, if you're at the bottom, you start at the bottom of the mountain, your strategy is I'm just going to walk to the very top and start from the very top. Um, and it's a hard, <laughs> for chuck rounders, it's a hard not to do that. Unless you're halfway up the mountain and you get into birds and you don't feel like you need to go any higher anymore, you know, then you can stay at that elevation. But a lot of the bird hunters that I, you know, a lot of the chucker hunters I hunt with, for whatever reason, we feel like we got to go to the top first, you know, and then we'll figure it, <laughs> then we'll figure it out from there. But, uh, you know, I think a lot of, you know, when you go early season, because you don't have the benefit of hunting in the snow, the snow line is always a good indicator as to where the birds could be. It's obviously much more, uh, indicative of where they are because you can see tracks in the snow it's easier for the dogs to track the birds and, and know where they're at because it's the, the the scent is so heavy you know especially if they've just walked over a snow patch and stuff like that so um but uh yeah i think with all the moisture that we've had especially that the big storm that just passed through you know i think that you're gonna have a really good time yeah uh, i'm looking forward to it and and you just sparked, you know, 50 million questions on this. I am curious, you know, coming from the Southeast, I, I operate, live and train within a completely different kind of region in terms of ground, you know, what we're running. Even when, you know, I, I rode my dogs, I try and find gravel, I try and find dirt and, you know, try and yeah. get off the green grass as much as I can. But it's, it's a challenge depending on where you live. It sounds kind of goofy to people that maybe don't live in, in a greened up areas as much as what I do. But how how much of it is an issue in that that habitat that you just described with the dog's pads? You know, is this something yeah. to where do you really just need to count on using boots or, you know, the fact that I've I've prioritized it this year, running on gravel, you know, tough foot, just keeping the nails trimmed and as much as possible. You know, obviously every dog's pads are going to be a little bit different. But, you know, how often do you see that from people that come out west to chase these these birds that all of a sudden these dogs are having tender foot issues. Well, it's not even just uh, people that come from like the South and stuff. It's people that come from East people that come from like, you know, come from like Southern California too, up in a chucker country. Yeah. It's a big thing to consider, you know, because you drive out here and your dogs blow their pads, you know, and then you don't have a dog to hunt with. Um, or, you know, if it's hot, you really don't want to leave one dog sitting in the truck the whole day. If you don't have a, an air conditioned kennel, um, you know, there's, there's so many logistical factors to, to sort of consider with that. And so if I were you coming from the South in, and not having the opportunity to run the dogs, because it's not just the hard rock, it's the fact that a lot of this rock can be, you know, a lot of this rim rock can also sharp. be level kind of lava rock where it's very sharp. Uh, and so it's, it's, uh, yeah, I don't use boots on my dogs. I don't have to, my dogs there. It's just, we, this is the terrain we run them in all the time. It's not, you know, their, their pads are just basically, they're just so hard calluses, but I <laughs> yeah. still think it's important. Like I still use like a musher secret and stuff like that. Uh, you know, I think it's, it's good to use it, but it's something that you should, something that you really should pay attention to. And, um, it's something that, you know, if you've got boots or if you make boots out of inner tubes, you know, bike inner tubes or however you do it, you know, it's probably best to start. And if your dogs are comfortable wearing boots and they've done it before, um, I would, I would, I would hundred percent be using boots with the dog, um, initially so that you don't get out there for half a day and they blow pads and then you're done for the rest of the trip. 
if you want to run them on pads, you run, run them on boots for the first, I don't know, however long you're going to be there, you know, and you want to try it out, you know, for the last day and see how they do, you can do that. But I mean, I would bring boots with me or I would, if I'm going to make my own boots, I'd bring the materials to make my boots. Um, because it is something, if you're going to run those dogs multi-day in checker country and they just don't have the exposure to the terrain, you most certainly want to take that in consideration. Is, it, is there anything else in regards to, you know, preparing the dogs such as the feet, you know, or, you know, when we talk about cheatgrass and stuff like that, you know, depending on where I've been and I kind of come across cheatgrass, I don't have the most experience in that, but a lot of them seem to have those little thorns or something, depending on which location you kind of go to. Uh, is that a concern? But again, if you don't have the boot, if you have the boots on, that's going to kind of alleviate it as well. But what kind of cheat grass and other hazards are we looking at within the area that could jump up and bite the dog in the butt, so to speak? Well, you're really going to have to contend with rattlesnakes out here. So I don't know if that's something you do, but that's something you will have to, I don't know, specifically know where you're going, but this time of year, you're going to have to keep aware of that. Um, so, you know, it's whether or not your dogs have had exposure to rattlesnakes or have done snake avoidance and things like that. Some people say it works. Some people say it doesn't. It's some dogs just are, are naturally adverse. But for you as a hunter and for you as a dog handler and having dogs out there, it is something to pay attention to because it's a, it's a reality. And then, you know, the biggest thing, too, is just going to be how potentially hot and arid it could be, you know, when, when you make it out, because it's, it's a different, it's a different kind of sun out here, you know, your elevation's higher. So you're, you know, you're, you are up higher. It's, it's, it's a hot, dry sun and it's, uh, you know, and so making sure that your dogs stay hydrated, making sure that you stay hydrated is a really important factor. And the dogs might consume more water than they normally do because, because the terrain's different there, you know, you're basically asking them to become like, you know, ultra marathoners, you know, uh, as opposed to, you know, like a, like a flat marathoner, you know? And so, you know, those, those are things to pay attention to with your dogs is, is just how they're dealing with the heat, the elevation, the, the country that they're having to hunt in, uh, and just making sure that you bring ample water or, or have an available water source that they can cool down in, uh, and make sure that they stay hydrated because, you know, the last thing you want is your dog to seizure out there and you have to, you know, to, to pack your dog out. So, you know, making sure that, and you might want to, and I don't know what your feeling is on it, but, you know, I bring cheese string for my dogs to give them a little bit of calorie boost because I don't feed them before we go out because of my concern for their stomachs to twist or anything like that. So I don't feed them before I leave. Uh, in the morning, but I'll bring like, uh, you know, like I said, like beef jerky or, you know, uh, cheese string or something like that to give them so that they, you know, that they, that their glucose can, can have a little bit of a bump while they're out there. Cause I think that they bonk just like we do when we're out there. So, yeah, you know, making sure that you yeah. can at least kind of help them out a little bit. Yeah. Recharge those, the, the glycogen storage, essentially, you know, we talked about that, uh, pretty regularly. I mean, there's, Stuff like that. I mean, even uh, oatmeal cream pies, that's kind of a, a recurring theme within our podcast that we talk about. So, uh, you're talking about yeah. those like little Debbie pies? Yeah, man. Little Debbie's, <laughs> man. Cheap and, and effective. I, I kind of gained that from uh, my mentor, old timer Bill, is uh, he always gives his dogs after the hunt an oatmeal cream pie and it's an OCD yeah. thing. And, and it's kind of <laughs> spread and reverberated like between everybody that I hunt with now. It's like I, I can tell you a handful of guys that just, that everywhere they go, they have oatmeal cream pies in their vest. So it, it is well, what it is. 
even yep. during an apocalypse, it'll never go bad. So I mean, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, how much water are you typically taking? You know, I know that you you run a final rise as, as well. You know, I typically yeah. just take his two thirty-two ounce jugs with me and maybe a bottle of water uh, in the game bag as well. Are you taking more than that, or or uh, what? What's your kind of typical routine as, in terms of water? Yeah, this time of year, I run both bottles, um, depending on how bad it is. Sometimes I'll even replace those those uh, squirt water bottles with the uh, it, liter and a half smart water bottles because they fit perfectly in those pouches if I just want to run water bottles. But this time of year, I'll run those 32-ounce squeeze bottles that come with the bag, and then I'll run an additional two-liter bladder. Um, and, and a lot of the times, because I don't do a good job of drinking when I'm out there, I usually conserve the water for the dogs. So I actually, the only way I really drink is if I do drink out of a bladder because it's so convenient just to, you know, put it in your mouth. So, um, so I, yeah. So this time of year, I'm, I'm most certainly bringing that two liter, either it's a two liter or, you know, if you've got a one liter, but I definitely bring in additional water and it's easier. It's easier just with, with regards to the weight and the weight distribution in the pack to, to carry that bladder. Cause you can just hang it off that hook from the very top and it just, it hangs evenly and it's easy to grow. It's easy to bring with you. And then, you know, you, you have a level of uh, comfort knowing you've got a little bit of additional water in there. Yeah. If you're hunting close to the truck, you know, and, and you can make circles back, you know, and, and replenish and that's fine. But with chucker hunting, you know, you could hunt a couple hundred yards from the truck or you could be five to 10 miles in, you know, yeah. and it just depends on where you're at and where you're hunting. So you really want to, you, you don't, you want to prepare early when you leave the truck that you might end up five miles away, uh, because of the circumstances and you've just chasing birds and you've, you know, and you're just into them, um, and, and not have to go crap. I have to stop now and go back to the truck mm-hmm. and I have to get more water for the dogs because there's no water up here. And now they're, they keep coming back every five minutes asking for water and they're foaming at the mouth and I don't have any water left. And, you got to be an opportunist too. If you do come across the the sources of water, like you're supposed to be honing in on or looking for birds around, you know, take the opportunity to fill the jugs up again before you go, go venturing off. Yeah, absolutely. You know, depending on where I'm at, what I'm doing and the time of year, like early season too, if I know that there's going to be maybe some Springs or something like that, I bring a, a Sawyer squeeze that I can even filter water because, you know, you may, the only opportunity you may have for water is a spring, but the cows have been in their crap and, you know, and you don't probably don't want to drink that water yourself. Uh, but if you can find some water where you can filter it, you know, then at least, you know, that you, you know, you have safe water to drink as well. Uh, cause obviously if something happens to your dog, you can rescue your dog, but something happens to you unless you're with somebody else, you know, dragging out a 200 pound yeah. guy is, is, is not, and you definitely don't want to be that person that has to be rescued. by certain <laughs> Right. It, it, unless your dog is Lassie, there, there's no help coming from you on that front with your dog. Probably dogs. not. Yeah. So, man, yeah, I mean, in, in terms of, I know that we've been going for a little oh, while, I'm but I, I got to ask in ter- terms of actually hunting, you know, you mentioned kind of go up and then if you find that level, that that grid line that the that the birds are at, how accurate is that? Is it pretty much like if you go find the the elevation line that that those birds are at, can you just kind of keep stay on that and keep going? Or is there a chance or possibility that higher up there would be another group or another covey? Oh, there, there's a hundred percent 
100%. It's not like grouse. Like blue grouse are very much, they like to occupy certain elevations based on time of year. Like yeah. I was just out on Monday hunting them and we found them between 7,800 feet and 8,000 feet. And that was, that was the band that they were in. We went up to 8,900 and we couldn't find anything, no sign, no nothing. So they were, they were right there within 200 feet of each other uh, in terms of where they like to be. Chucker, yeah, they can be, but I, I don't think it's a hard, I've, in my experience over the years, it's not a hard, fast rule. I think it's one of those things where, you know, there's a possibility and it's always worth, if you're already at that elevation and it's, you know, there's no effort to maybe side hill until you get to the point where the crest comes down and then you can hit that crest and then walk up, then, then that's a, an efficient way of hunting it. Um, or if you're hunting it to hunting side hill to an objective, like a rock outcropping or something like that, then that's worthwhile doing. I don't think you should discount it. But, you know, I think that well, what I've seen over the years is birds will occupy different di- different areas. Maybe some moved down towards water earlier than some of the other ones. So, you know, it's, I think it's more important to focus on objectives like the rock outcroppings, uh, you know, the, the draws in the mountains where, you know, if it's windy, they can get down into so that there's, you know, because they don't want to be sitting up there in the wind. You know, they want to get down into, into some sheltered areas. So if they're, if it's windy, you know, looking for those depressions or those draws, as we call them, in the side of the mountain so that, you know, that's a, there's a likelihood that they could be in there uh, because it's a little bit more sheltered. Uh, you know, you look up, you know, whatever the, you know, this time of year, you know, it's going to be, I guess what it would be like the north side. It's going to be a little bit sunnier. Um you know, when you get into the winter, it's that south side because the axis of the sun is going to have the sun more frequently. Um, looking for the side that maybe has more developed green grasses. You know, if there's grasses up there that are and they're there and they're not on the other side, that be an area to focus on too. So less of like elevation being a hard line factor, and more so the terrain, the country, and the objectives that you think. And I know this sounds really uh, anthropomorphized, but like thinking like if I was a bird, you know, where would I want to be? Yeah. And, and so, you know, I might want to be in the rocks right now or I would that, that grass looks like it would be something I'd want to eat. I'd probably want to go over there and eat. So let's go check that out. And, and then the great thing with Chucker, too, is that, you know, I don't know how it is with some of the other birds that you hunt. Like I've only ever hunted pheasant and stuff like twice in my life and I've never been successful at shooting one. Um, but Chucker liked to crap everywhere that they are. And so, you know, we call them ice cream cones, the green ice cream cones where, you know, fresh crap is green. And then there's like a white top to it. It looks like a, like a drumstick, <laughs> uh, not one you want to eat, but you know, we call them the green ice cream cones. So, you know, there's either going to be like stages of the green where, you know, maybe it's a little bit like lighter, like it's been there, like they maybe, you know, left it there within the last week. There's going to be maybe, you know, brown ones that they, they, maybe that could have been even from last year, but then you'll know you're in the right zone. And if you start seeing, especially in those rock outcroppings where they roost, they just crap in there. And so, you know, you, you'll you know for sure if there's birds in there, or if they utilize it based on the age of, of the crap that's in there. Uh, and, and so it's actually pretty easy to start understanding if you're in the right zone or not based on the droppings that they leave behind. What about shooting? You know, again, ideally the dogs go on point. They give you enough time to get up there, which in chucker country can take you a, a little while. Are you going through the effort of trying to circle around and get get the uphill advantage, or are you just, uh, or are you, I was gonna, are you I just was rolling in that. and kicking them up that. and shooting so, them? <laughs> it's a, so yeah. So one of the things with chuckers is that when they fly, they do what I call the J hook, where they'll fly down. 
and they're not going to fly straight down like uh, like grouse do and just like go all the way down the mountain. They'll fly down and then they'll circle they'll circle up in like a J, either an outside or an inside J. Um, and then because they're going to try and hoof tail back up, so they'll fly down and run back up. So you know, with chucker hunting, for me, if I ha- if I can, based on how the dogs are pointing, if I can get down around and I can pinch the birds between myself and the dog and get them first of all to what we call meatball up, which is when they flush, they because you're below them, they have to flush up more than out. They flush up and they turn into these like meatballs in the air, which are a lot more easier to hit than when they're flying close to the ground and they're fully stretched out and you're having to try and shoot at a downward angle to adjust your angle for shot. Um, If you can get them to go to flush up, then they'll stay up higher in that elevation. If they, if you're always coming from the top over the top of your dogs and are always flushing down, ultimately all your birds are going to be halfway, three quarters of the way down the mountain and so if you want to go back after them, you're going to have to go all the way down to get back on them. But if you can come around somehow, you either if you can come from underneath and cause them to meatball up, or if you can come across and have them flush laterally out rather than down, then it helps you from a, from an efficiency standpoint to continue to hunt them um, within that same elevation band, because you know that they're going, you know, with a variance of however far they fly and Early season birds, if they're not educated too, they're not flying a ton of distance. So, so you have really good opportunities for follow-up opportunities or follow-up chances on them. Um, you get later in the year with educated birds and they're going to be flying and they're going to be gone. Yeah. And you have one chance and one chance only. But this time of year, you should be okay in terms of getting those opportunities to maybe have that initial flush and a secondary flush. But the best bit of advice I'm going to give you is this, because this holds true. Um is that I don't know what kind of gun you're going to be shooting with and what you're going to be taking with you and what you how, how you like to shoot and all that. But so Chucker, when they're in the cubby, there's always going to be a sentry bird, right? That sentry bird is going to be the lookout bird. It's going to be either on a rock or it's going to be somewhere where you can pay attention to what's going on. And that bird is going to be probably the first bird that flushes, which is going to cause the rest of the cubby to go. It holds very true that there is always a couple stragglers or a straggler somewhere within where that cubby flushed that didn't get the message that it was time to fly. And so there's always a late flusher somewhere in there. So if, so don't, if you get up there and they flush and they're a little bit out of range and, and don't just like dump every, every shell you have in your gun, because there's, there's, I, I would say this is a 90% held true thing that there's always going to be a bird that's going to be left over in there, whether it's a little bit further down. So just pay attention. So don't just, you know, even if you do shoot all your shells immediately, you're going to have to get really good at reloading quickly because there's always going to be that there's going to be a straggler in there somewhere that you're going to have an opportunity on. Yeah. It's fun. I got a couple buddies that give me crap because it's like, it's more or less a reminder for myself, but anytime I unload both barrels, I immediately just verbalize and and essentially almost yell sometimes like reload. And it's more of a reminder to myself, but I'm also telling everybody in the whole group reload because that's true with all cubby birds. uh, Essentially. I'm not going to say it's, it's, 90% 90% plus of the time, but very often you'll see that there's a straggler or two. And very often if, if you're quick on the trigger and you're shooting at that sentry bird or the, you know, the lead lead birds in the covey, if you're quick enough and you have quick access to your shells and you reload real quick, 
you can get a poke at the at the stragglers and and it holds true. But I'm glad I asked that question because I would have thought that being uphill would have given me the advantage kind of, you know, if you think militaristic about this stuff, it's like uphill is the advantage. But it does kind of make sense that if you're downhill, those birds aren't going to want to flush over the top to, of you or come to you. They're going to want to go straight up. And it, it kind of kind of mirrors what I tell everybody when you hunt woodcock. If you can kind of pin them between you and the bird and you and you flush them up, they're going to kind of go straight up to the top of the uh, the canopy, so to speak, whatever early successional you're in. And then there's like the, that slight delay before they plane out and go out. And that's when you can kind of take advantage of shooting them. So that, that does make a lot of sense how you described it. Yeah. And then also too, like when they're, when they'll, if you come from above and they flush down, they're generally going to flush in one big group down. When you come from a when you come from above um, and they, they kind of do that meatball out where they, they kind of do this, what you have is this opportunity for these birds to go multiple different directions. So, so then you have this opportunity now to hunt different, you know, bunch of single birds, which, those single birds will hold a lot easier, a lot better than those massive cubbies because, it, you know, obviously more eyes, you know, that, that they're on higher alert. When you have those single birds, they'll land and then they'll just like tuck underneath those those bunch grasses or into a rock or something like that. And so they'll hold a lot better for those dogs to be able to work and start picking up those singles. So it's a it's a good strategy. Now, I mean, obviously, it's not always easy to be able to get underneath the dogs um and to hunt from there but if you have that opportunity even at the very minimal you know if you can come in at an, at an angle to the dog and not just straight over the top if you can come at an angle then I, you know i do think that they flush a lot better and give you better shooting opportunities but you know the terrain is going to be the the, the the dictator of all that what about chokes and shot sizes are you changing it throughout the season based on how they act or, or what kind of cover you're in you know talk, talk to me about your preference in terms of chokes and shot size so I shoot, uh, so I shoot boss, boss shells. I shoot their number sevens, their three inch, 20 gauge number sevens. I've shot those now for three years. Uh, cause I shoot a Frankie SLX in 20 gauge. And, um, I also shoot modified, modified in both barrels. So I bought an extra modified choke and I should just shoot mod mod. Um, okay. and, uh, I never, I don't change it. I don't change it because the way that those sevens pattern. So you talk to a lot of people, you know, they'll always say like the number sixes or, or that's the ideal chucker load. Um, but I honestly, I don't think, I think it's got less to do with, with shot size and more to do with pattern and how the pattern looks and the density of your pattern. Um, you know, you, you talk some, you know, you look at like a, like a, like a two and three, the easiest way is just to say, you know, like a two and three quarter inch shell uh, in a number six as opposed to number seven. I mean, you're looking at over 100 BBs more, uh, give or, you know, give or take. And so if you think about the pattern density, when you increase the increase the shot amount to over, you know, to, to about 100 BBs, uh, it's going to be a much denser pattern. So I'm a big fan and I'm always somebody that is a huge proponent of patterning your shotguns so that you know what your pattern looks like and what it's doing. And is your pattern straight on? Is your pattern shoot a little bit to the left, a little bit to the right, a little bit down? Like what is your shotgun doing? Because those are the individual characteristics of your shotgun and you should understand those. So, you know, when you're shooting at a bird and you see, you know, you see the pattern hit low, you're like, what is that? Is that, is that a me? Is that a me issue? Is that, is it a, a bad mount? Did I do that? Or is that just the way my shotgun shoots? And so you have to compensate for that. But 
I like the Boss three inch number sevens for chucker. Actually, I use those across the board for everything. I use them for mountain quail. I use them for quail. Uh, I use them for state. I use them for blue grouse. Um, I think it's for me in my experience the most versatile shell that I've come across, and it's non-tox, so I can I go to California and hunt a lot, so I can go over the border and hunt in California without having to worry about changing shells out. So yeah. that's what I, that's for me my preference in the shell that I've used, and I don't have any relationship with them. That's just something that my buddy Levi Day put me onto in terms of going from the sixes to the sevens. And it made it a night and day difference. My, 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 my accuracy went up so much when I went to the, from, to the sevens, from the sixes in the boss. Um, and my kill rate went up and I just think they're a fantastic shell. And like I said, I have no affiliation with them, but I keep using them. Um, and then, yeah, modified, modified, because then I know exactly what the, the pattern is going to do every single time. Some people like to go like, you know, uh, it's like improved cylinder or something like that. I think a lot of it depends on how how uh, close those birds are flushing, and if you're as long as you can be patient enough to allow those birds to get out far enough to whereas your pattern's effective. Because if I'm shooting a bird at ten yards with a with a modified, it's basically like shooting a gun, and so you know you, yeah. you really have to allow the bird to get out. Uh, a little bit further so that your pattern can spread enough. But again, it's understanding what your pattern does and what it looks like at differing distances. So I pattern out to 30 yards so that I know what my pattern looks like out to there, but I also know what it looks like within 15 so that I, you know, that I can vary it based on, and I can let the bird get out a little bit further if I have to, you know, based on how far away it flushes. Good to know. Cause yeah, I still have a, uh, quite a bit of boss sevens myself, three inch as well, 20 gauge. So, I mean, what you just described, that's primarily what I shot last year. That's, you know, I have quite a bit in here because to your point on the non-tox, it's just, it's just the convenience of not having to swap shells based on, you know, I, I hunt a lot of different States, a lot of different properties within the States and, everybody kind of has their own rules and, and regulations. And it's just like, mm-hmm. I, I got kind of tired of doing the, the song and dance and, and I prefer shooting lead. I, I do, but ju- just mm-hmm. not having to worry about that regulation. It's just, you know, it, convenience yes. and ease of mind. A hundred percent. And, you know, I'll still shoot every once in a while, you know, I'll get some lead, you know, I'll have lead and I'll shoot it, you know, and I, I still shoot, you know, when I take my 12 gauge out, I still shoot lead because uh, it's all I have for it. Uh, you know, I don't think it's got anything. It's, you know, if it's legal to do, then it, then I don't think there's an ethics issue in it. Um, but uh, I'm 100% the same with you is that I, I like to hunt in California and California required to use non-tox. And so, you know, for me, because I can literally hunt in Nevada and drive 30 minutes and hunt in California too. So I don't want to have to worry about A, getting caught with any lead ammo and I'm not supposed to have it. And, and B, just the pain in the butt of having to buy two two different styles of ammo you know and and, exactly and it's it's one of those things where i know like you know for me i i really even though i like i have a remington and stuff like that and i like to shoot it you know it's specific to stuff my primary gun is at 20 gauge and then i shoot for everything that i possibly can and so for me i understand that that setup i know what it does i feel confident with it and then i can you know and then and i'm accurate with it so i'm not going to go off and start trying to shoot a different gun every weekend because for me it's just it it it's it's a bigger issue of trying to relearn a platform or become comfortable with a different platform every time you shoot when it you know when you shoot it should be very instinctual and if you're shooting the same gun all the time your mount's going to be the same 
everything that you have to consider when it terms in terms of accuracy stays very similar and very consistent. And, and it's just one of those, one of those factors that you don't have to concern yourself with. Exactly. And, and when you do as much hunting and traveling and all that stuff, I mean, just some of the things that you can make just routine routine and you don't even Mm -hmm. have to consider it. It just saves you time and energy and, and man, as we kind of wrap this up, I do want to kind of get your take for for better or worse. I want I want to hear uh, your thoughts on the rough grouse versus chucker debate. You know, it's been been around for quite a while. I don't know if you've even hunted rough grouse, but what's your kind of general thoughts overall from uh, from both parallels? I, I'm kind of still trying to figure out how it ever became rough grouse versus chucker. They're kind of found in completely different elements and, and type of habitat, but that seems to kind of be the discussion over the years. So what, what's your thoughts on it? Uh, what's your favorite baseball team? Uh, Boston Red Sox. Okay. Well, I'm San Francisco Giants. All right. So <laughs> all right, that's just the reality of it, right? Yeah. It's what you're exposed to is what you grew up with. It's however you're introduced to it. You know, that'll always be your team and that'll always be what you you're probably never going to change if you're a real fan. And I think that, you know, it's no different than if, you know, what's your favorite ice cream flavor? Yeah. You know, yeah. Mine's mint chocolate chip. Yours could be Rocky Road. I mean, it's, it really doesn't, they all taste delicious, right? I mean, they yeah. all taste delicious. Uh, it's just, um, it's what you prefer. And, yeah. and so honestly, uh, it's funny to me because people I've been asked to on, on a podcast, you know, I said, like, well, you know, what's your dream hunt? And I, I tell people like my dream hunt is to go to South Dakota or North Dakota and hunt and hunt pheasant, do one of those like, one of those iconic like pheasant hunts right and and they people just kind of laugh and they're like my gosh i do that every weekend you know that's not something that's you know even though it's cool right that wouldn't you know for them that doesn't rank high as their like bucket list hunt right yeah i don't have that access and i don't and i don't and i've never done it and and so for me that's something that i'm like that would be rad to do that would be so much fun i'd love to do that um and consequently, the same thing is that people, when I talk to people and interview them or I talk to them and provide like feedback on the phone, um, you know, they're like, I really want to come out and hunt chucker. And it's like, man, I hunt chucker every weekend. I hunt chucker two, three days a week, you know, throughout the entirety of the season. Um, I love it too. And, I, and I'm with you on that. But, you know, for me, I have every opportunity to do that every day of the season. There's things that I haven't had the opportunity to do that I would love to go up and do like a traditional rough grouse hunt. You know, I'd love to go uh, hunt pheasant. You know, I'd love to go shoot woodcock. There's things that I don't have access to that I've never had an opportunity to do. Well, I've had opportunities. I've just never capitalized on them that I would love to do. And so it's really what you, it's just a flavor, man. I, I don't think yeah. there, and I know I'm not noncommittal about it, but I'm just the reality of it. I think we find reasons to argue regardless of, you know, what, what the topic is. And it's like, well, quit arguing about it and just go out and have fun because that's the whole point of doing this, right? You know, it's, this is, we do this to reduce the aggravation in our lives and to reduce the conflict and to go out and do something that's pure and enjoyable. And, and, and you're out in nature and you're not in front of the TV or the screen, or, you know, you're not dealing with the crap of your normal day, you know, you go out to escape. So quit, quit creating problems where there doesn't need to be problems. Just go out and have fun. (laughs) No, I mean, I, that's well said. I appreciate, appreciate that sentiment because I think to your point, I, I think it's just a way for a bunch of people to get through the off season. And debating on what you know what oh. they love to do and what they're they're capable of doing because most of the chucker guys you you ask them like well what why is it better than rough grouse well they've never hunted rough grouse and then and then conversely you know you ask the rough grouse hunter same thing they've never hunted chucker 
And uh, you did you did spark one last question for me as as we do wrap this up is to your point of just not having the opportunity, not having the access. Himalayan snowcock, that's something that I haven't talked about hardly at all on this podcast because I know relatively nothing about it. And again, back to kind of the debate and and people's opinions, they are what they are, but I've heard from some people that you can't hunt them with dogs. Then I've heard some people that say I've hunted them with dogs. Give me give me a Himalayan snowcock, you know, breakdown real quick. We don't have to spend too much time on it, but I am curious to your thoughts on this. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, so uh, outside the Himalayas, outside of places like Pakistan and, and Nepal and places like that, uh, the only place you can find Himalayan snowcock in the world is in the Ruby Mountains of Nevada. And so they were introduced in the 1970s, like late 60s, early 70s. There was kind of two introductions. One kind of, they, they released them uh, and then they lost them. Don't know where they went. And then they reintroduced them and then they stuck. And well, maybe they originally stuck too, but anyways, they, they stuck. And so there's a, there's an estimated population, but they don't really know how many there are because they don't, you know, they're, they're basing a lot of it on harvest numbers and, uh, you know, visual flyovers, things like that. So uh, the birds live uh, between 9,500 and 11,000 feet. Um, so uh, they're high elevation birds. They live, they're about, they, if you think about, if you've ever hunted um, um, and shot a, a very mature uh, male sage grouse, then they're about the size of a sage grouse, like in terms of like the big size. Okay. So they're, they're a big bird. Uh, they're one of the highest flying birds. I think they can get up to, and I might be a little bit wrong here, but they can get up to like, 80 miles an hour flying down the canyon. So they, they fly. They're free, really fast birds. Uh, but they, they're a cubby bird. They live up in the high cliffs. So they they prefer, you know, the nasty weather. They like it up there. They're, they're very comfortable. Uh, they cohabit the same countryside as uh, the same mountains as mountain goats. So they're, they're high up there. Um, and they feed off the forbs and the, 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 the vegetation that's up there. So if you can imagine like high tundra stuff, it's, it's very small forbs of flowers. And, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're as, they're as tough as you're going to get when it comes to like a bird hunt, you can only hunt them with a shotgun. So you have the, the, the advantage, the disadvantage of having to get, I shot my first one at 69 yards and that's a pretty far shot with a full choke and a three inch 12 gauge, uh, number five. And, uh, so, you know, you got to get close to them. So it's very much like a big game hunt and it's very much a big game hunt. It's a spot and stock type of a hunt. You can use dogs. And I'll tell you right now that I have seen, and I have been a part of an opportunity to, when I shot one where my buddy Gerhardt Stevenson, his border collie put us on Himalayan snowcock at about 10,500 feet. And he put us right into them. And without a hundred percent, I've seen people's dogs hunt them. But the big thing about taking your dog, and this is why I don't take my dogs is because we just spent a bunch of time talking about what I prefer my dogs to do when it comes to chucker hunting. I want them to be two to 400 yards in front of me working. Um, you can't have that in, in that, in that terrain. It's very steep. It's very dangerous, both for you. But if you have a dog that's a little bit, you know, that's high powered and that's going to get into some of that crazy stuff, it, it can be very, it can be fatal for your dog if your dog slips or falls because these these you know two hundred two hundred foot cliffs, you know, that these birds occupy. You can't get down there as an individual, and let alone your dog isn't going to be able to get down there and 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 not 
and potentially it could, it could be a safety issue. So that's why a lot of people don't take their dogs if they have like really, really true bird dogs in that sense, because if, unless you can heal your dog the whole time and control them, uh, it, it's a, it's, it's detrimental because if they're pushing out 200 yards and they're flushing birds out, the birds are very sensitive and, and they, even though they may not see you, they know you're there and, and they'll move off and they'll fly and they'll go back into the cliffs. And so, you know, you want to, you have to be, you have to use stealth as, as a, um, as a tactic when you, when you get them. So the people that I have hunted them with that have their dogs hunt, hunt with dogs that are non-traditional bird dogs in that sense, border collies or Australian shepherds, because they stay close to heel and they, and they're very quiet. Um, and then when they smell birds, they'll start moving out. So you can kind of know when there's a scent around, but they're not out 100, 200 yards because it's just, that's not the style of hunting that Himalayan snowcock um, requires. So, you know, you can, if, if you can, if you can get your dog to control and to keep the heel, then you hundred percent could, could hunt it with any bird dog that you had. It's just, you gotta be confident with your dog's ability to be handled like that. But yeah, it's tough, man. It's probably, it's one of those, what do they say? Like it's a type B, you know, like, like a, so like a type B type of excitement where in the moment, because you're, you know, you've gone uh, 4,000 feet of gain in like two miles or sometimes a mile and a half, depending on a route you take, um, you know, you're pretty tired and the elevation kind of gets to you. And, and in the moment you're just sort of like embracing the suck. And it's not until you kind of get back home and you're like, man, that was so much fun. I had such a good time. I can't wait to go again. <laughs> a lot of stair stepper in the off season. It sounds like. Well, yeah. I mean, every day should be a training day, you know, regardless of what you do and, you know, you should try and do something every day to make yourself sweat and get better. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a tough hunt and it's something that, you know, some people consider it's not a real upland bird because you can't hunt it with dogs. But I mean, I would argue that you can, uh, but you really have to be confident with your dog's ability and your ability to control your dog. And uh, yeah, you just have to be very fit to be able to do it. Because if you've never gone up to, you know, 10,000, 11,000 feet, you know, you might not know how your body reacts to it. Coupled with the other physiolog physiological things of like being dehydrated, you know, being tired, uh, all those things that could, that could lead to, um, you know, altitude sickness, because you're definitely have, you're, you're definitely at risk of, of experiencing it. Last year, I experienced what they call high altitude sleep apnea. And so what that is, is that, you know, when you're at a high elevation, um, you basically develop an app, a sleep apnea. So I would, I couldn't sleep while I was up there because I was so dehydrated and it was so hot while we were up there and opening that I was just so baked. And there, where we hunt, where we've hunted every, where we hunt is, uh, has no water. So anything, any water that you have, you have to bring up with you. And so it's weight's always a factor because you have to pack everything in with you. So I developed a high altitude sleep apnea where I was basically stopping breathing, you know, when I was sleeping. And so, you know, it, that's a little scary, but this year, I was, yeah. this year I was fine. I, you know, I was able to stay hydrated a lot better and, you know, but they're, they're, they're all factors, you know, the more muscle you have, the more oxygen that your body requires to move those muscles, you know, and I'm 200 pound guy. And so that's a lot of muscle to be moving around and, um, you know, so yeah, it's, it, there, there's a lot of things that kind of go into it where, you know, things that maybe you wouldn't consider from a bird hunting perspective that you do and you should. 
Uh, and a lot of it comes down to your personal fitness level and your ability to, to be up in those kinds of terrain and to move deftly, have good core strength so that you can move through the country and you can stay controlled. Because again, you know, you're in the middle of nowhere and, and you know, you, if you got injured, you'd have to get ellied out, you know? And so, you know, you break it, you know, you, you twist a knee or break an ankle or, you know, do something like that. You're going to have to pay for search and rescue or a helicopter to come pull your ass out. So it's definitely, there's... A lot of considerations when you're doing it. It's not for everybody. No, not for everybody, but you know, not everything's for everybody. So, dude, I I, I could keep picking your brain for a while on it. We'll just have to circle back and have you back on and and, and maybe just learn more. I mean, I, I have a natural curiosity just for the high altitude factor. I mean, especially you go start chasing Chucker and, and Himalayan snowcock and stuff like that. You're going to come away with certain. Uh, tips and tricks on how to deal with high altitude and and i'm about to kind of experience it for the my first time you know kicking off the kicking off the season with ptarmigan and bluegrass here next week and then followed up by the chucker and everything i'm excited to do it i'm you know i'm a i'm a low country dude where i have the smoky mountains but it's steep but it's just not the high elevation you know we have some really steep grades but it just doesn't climb up to what you guys have over in the west so what one of the things i will recommend um again i have no affiliation with it but i found it last year and i thought that they were really great and even gerhardt i, I gave him the rest of my bottle i started i bought a a bottle of uh, the salt stick. I think it's called salt stick. They're electrolyte tablets. You can get them on Amazon, like 15 bucks for a bottle. I keep those with me all the time when I bird hunt now. And it's like, you take two every 30, you know, every 30 minutes of vigorous activity and it helps replenish the, the electrolytes, which that's what causes cramping and all kinds of other things like dehydration. So um, I started using, I, I bring those and always have those with me. And I think that that's a, a wise thing either. If you're going to, if you don't want to do that, you know, make, you know, bring a Gatorade with you or something that you can, you can help replenish or a uh, mix or whatever, uh, liquid IV or whatever you do. But it's always nice to have something other than water to help replenish some electrolytes when you're out there. Well, a lot of people don't even realize if all you drink is water, if you think I have to hydrate and they just keep drinking water, you'll actually flush all the salt and sodium and electrolytes out of your system and make it even worse for you to where you kind of, you need that balance. You have to do the salt. It's like, I I, I just did a, a a long run the other day and I got back and my wife's looking at me. I'm like, I just, I need some salt and I'm putting salt in water and drinking it. And she's just looking at me like, oh my God, I'm like, hey, you got to do what you got to do, right? Like it's part of it. But, you know, people, people think you hear hydration and all they're going to do is go, you know, down a gallon right. of water and you could actually be doing yourself more harm than good. Yeah. And when you're out there, you know, it's nice to have something that tastes that tastes like something other than water. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, you, you know, so yeah, there's like just little tips and tricks. I mean, if you're, if you're, I, you know, like I said, I mean, if you're, if you're into exercising and you do stuff anyways, or you're running or you're hiking or whatever, you, you start to learn about what your body likes and how it responds to, to a certain things and what it does. And, you know, and so over the years I've learned the things that I like and what my body likes and what, when I'm, you know, when I'm sitting at home, the things I like to drink and eat, as opposed to when I'm out doing strenuous activities, the things I like to eat and drink, which are actually much different. So, you know, but yeah, making sure that you keep, you know, food with you and little, you know, snacks, you probably eat something every hour so that you reduce the, 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 the low glycogen and your, the, you know, the risk of bonking while you're out there, um, you know, and something that you can take to, that's light enough so that you can replenish electrolytes is, is that it's just, it's just part of the planning process, you know, it's part of, part of being prepared, you know, and also bringing a, uh, if you don't carry one already, I think it's a highly valuable thing of always having an emergency blanket in your pack with you at all times, because I've had to use mine before 
and and I ended up buying a two person one, so I had a little bit extra uh, extra material to work with. But yeah, you just want to make sure that when you start going out in, these, in the big country where you're far away from people, because that's kind of the objective too, is that you want the farther away you get from people, the higher likelihood it is to find better, more cooperative birds. But ultimately, the the risk factor that comes in is that you have to be very self self-reliant and self-sufficient if you break down which i've done before uh and you have to sleep out in the desert in the middle of the winter time or if you're out there and something happens you know i started carrying a, a tourniquet just in the off chance that you fall and you have traumatic bleeding at least you can apply a tourniquet so you don't bleed out up there i know these are things that kind of lead to fear you know but it, it's preparation right they're cheap insurance policies you know, so they're all things to consider, you know, when you're out there doing things in remote areas, you have to, you have to be self-reliant and you have to be prepared. Absolutely. Well, I I don't have anything to add on that. We'll actually wrap it up this time. Travis, I appreciate you taking the time and, and sharing your, your story as well as, you know, all your tips and tricks for the hunting. And, and I look forward to checking it out for myself here soon, but uh, we'll have, we'll circle back and have you on and, and talk more preparation and stuff like that sometime. I appreciate you having me on, bud. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Travis Warren from the Upshucker podcast. This was presented by Standing Stone Supply, DT Systems, Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. It's always fun getting to chat and know somebody from a completely different side of the the country, the, the actual type of hunting that I do, just a whole different type of perspective, uh, but with a commonality of something like hunting dogs to where we can actually just catch up and, and I can get, get to pick his brain on what he does and something that I'm actually going out there very soon to to try and do. At the time that you guys are listening to this, um, I'm either still out there or have been out there for the past couple of weeks. But at the time of, of me recording this, I hadn't left yet, obviously, as we talked about in the in the podcast. But getting to pick somebody like Travis's brain on on just the the Chucker 101, Chucker Hunting 101. I mean, there, there are certain elements to where there, there's common denominators and, and common threads from species to species, but each one is different and unique in, in of itself. And that's why I personally like chasing new and different species to really try and experience what each one has to offer in their own right. And uh, I'm excited to get out there and, and chase after it. So, you know, get to experience them and and uh, chucker hunting, it's it's just one of those, the guys that do it, they get bit by the bug and, and they're just as passionate about it as, as I would argue about, you know, anybody else that likes to chase their preferred species, be it pheasant, pheasant hunters or rough grouse hunters or, or what have you, you know, everybody loves what they, what they do. And so uh, I'm excited to get out there and, and hopefully see or, or experience just a, a piece of what has been such a passion and motivation for him to to go on and do his own show for the the amount of years that he's been doing it. And if you guys haven't checked out Upchucker podcast, I highly encourage you, especially if you like uh, just the stories and hearing people's experiences chasing this. You know, he he's he, he's one to tell you like you will learn some stuff from him, but he's more or less just the 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 storyteller and, and bringing people on so that you can learn from other people's actual firsthand experience. So uh, it's a valuable resource, especially if it's something that you're go- going to try and do that you're you're not familiar with as uh, as I am in, in this topic. But uh, with all that being said, I'm not going to keep you long. I know, I know that me and him went a little bit longer on the uh, 
on the episode, and I could have just kept picking his brain for a few more hours. But we'll we'll just have to have him back back on and circle around and 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 discuss you know what I did right or did wrong on, on my own personal experience chasing these crazy birds. But uh, again, I hope you enjoyed it. If you uh, if you enjoyed this episode, you learned anything, you find any value in in any of the previous episodes, then. Uh, by all means, please consider giving voluntary contributions to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash yourself. It opens you up to a number of different uh, resources such as, you know, bonus episodes with Nick Larson every single month and uh, Zoom rooms and, and some discount codes and, and, and a bunch of different stuff. I mean, it, it's where I'm constantly trying to come up with creative and different things to throw out at Patreon. So, uh, again, you know, please consider signing up for that. It's it, it truly means the world to us in this podcast would not exist without their uh, participation. So with all that being said, uh, you know, please hit the subscribe button so you can catch the next episode coming out. And I really appreciate that. Share it with a friend if you don't mind. And I hope everybody's out there having fun hunting with their dogs because this is the time of year that we all look forward to uh, during the off season. So get out there, get after it and have fun. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks, guys. Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high-grade, lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup, just have to replace it again and again year. Go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want. If you're considering changing your dog's food soon, then be sure to check out Yukonuba Pro Performance. Their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance. They also now have the new puppy formula to help your pup start strong and live active. When looking at all the different food options, remember Yukonuba to help power their ultimate performance. Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.